Quantspeak, expert insights from quants for quants. Welcome to Quantspeak, a new podcast from the CKF Institute at Fitch Learning. Hi, I'm Dan Tudball, editor of Wilmot Magazine, and this is Quantspeak. The London Wales saga concluded catastrophically in 2012, costing JP Morgan 6.2 billion in losses. At every level, from regulatory and corporate oversight, through reporting and conflicts of interest, to pricing choices and risk management, it's a masterclass in how not to get things done. In this edition of Quantspeak, I'm joined by Professor Natalie Packham. We'll be talking about Natalie's work on correlation stress testing of stock and credit portfolios and why the London Whale portfolio is a great case study for this novel approach to risk management. Discussing the driving concept of linking economically meaningful scenarios to correlation scenarios, why risk management in the London Whale case was so deficient, the advantages of a correlation stress testing approach and how the culture of the finance industry could actually be risk management's biggest challenge. Well, I hope we'll have enough time to cover all of that in one conversation. So without further ado, welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks very much for making the time to speak with us. So Natalie's going to be presenting a talk for the, uh, the CQF Institute uh, on recent research uh, focusing on correlation stress testing of stock and credit portfolios. And um, what we're hoping to do today is just have a chat around the themes that uh, are involved in that particular topic, uh, hopefully serve as a way to whet people's appetite to actually attend the talk or watch the video. But at the same time, we'd like to explore the themes that arise uh, from this particular uh, set of research. So maybe just to kick things off, it would be great, Natalie, if you could sort of summarize um, your view on that particular incident. And um, we can we can look into that a little bit before we start talking about how your correlation approach may well have actually uh, helped in um, avoiding the entire situation in the first place. About the London whale, uh, just to give a very brief background, the London whale refers to a loss of approximately accumulated 6.2 billion US dollars. Um, that occurred in 2012 at JP Morgan. And as you all know, JP Morgan is the bank that first came up with the concept of valued risk. So it's a bank that's very known for its risk management. Rather ironic. Um, um, in, in a way, because what's special about the London Whale case, as opposed to other incidents that have losses of that order coming from a single trade or a single trading desk. What's special here is that it's not um, a case linked to fraud or criminal activity. Um, other losses, uh, for instance, uh, uh, several years ago, Société Générale, uh, they typically, um, those are cases where a single trader or a team of traders, they hide losses. But here it's different. Everything was uh, open, and um, uh, so everything, uh, the, the, the portfolio was under the observation of uh, the risk management operations. So this makes it a particularly interesting case 
from uh, from an, uh, um, a risk management analysis perspective. Um, so why could such a loss occur then? There's one thing that's special about the, uh, the, the portfolio. The portfolio was not within the investment banking uh, division, which has its own risk management system. Um, so um, it was in the chief, located within chief investment office, which right. ran a separate risk management system. So from that perspective, uh, one could assume that maybe what happened would not have been possible if it had been within the investment banking division. So it wasn't a client-facing division of the bank. This this part of the bank was really tasked with looking after the the, the risk figures for the entire enterprise, really. As I understand the chief investment office, um, and, and in particular that uh, trading desk, they were, uh, it was their... Um, their, their job to invest surplus um, deposits. So um, it, it was it was wasn't a very large operation as such. Mm. And so what they did, they set up a synthetic credit derivatives portfolio consisting of wide tracks, uh, North American credit derivatives. Um, uh, in order to generate some return on those surplus deposits. That right. They uh, that, those, that, the North American index was the CDX index, um, uh, I think. That's, it's the CDX index, that's right. And it's, talking about the time that they set this up, it was actually just before the subprime crisis. Um yes. And it, this this whole uh, episode, if you will, um, played out over a course of four years before finally uh, accumulating in this $6.2 billion loss. Um, the, one of the things that I found interesting was that at the outset, which was why I found it quite ironic, was that... Um, this was the period of time when Basel III was in the offing and uh, JP Morgan was attempting to get its house in order really before the new regulations came into place. And initially this uh, trade was set up mainly with the purpose of uh, reducing the uh, risk exposure for the entire, for the entire bank. But when, um, profits started to pour in and it was evident that this particular strategy in its first couple of years was rather timely and uh, producing excellent returns, the emphasis somewhat shifted away towards the, uh, the profit related aspect of things. Mm -hmm. um, you were, you were actually working in, uh, in, uh, in the industry before going into academia full time um, so I guess, uh, you know, t tackling this particular topic as, uh, as somebody who's been both on, on both sides of the fence, as it were, um, does it sort of uh, produce uh, memories or recall in terms of your own experience on, on, on the industry side? The bad old days? The bad old days. Well, um, uh, back when I was in the, in the industry, that was in the early 2000s. 
Um, I was located at the uh, front office and, um, well, I didn't have a lot to do with risk management. I mean, I'd, I'd had a, I, I did have a lot to do with risk management because, um, uh, be, be, because we were under the observation of risk management, but we, uh, we didn't ourselves really take a risk management perspective. So um, thinking the, the, the way of thinking at the front office is really about generating profit. And um, it's, it's one of those things where I learned uh, later from studying different cases and from having a broader view when I was back in academia is the importance of risk management um, is really um, not only on the bank wide level, but even on 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 the um, uh, on, on, a, on on a society's level. It's in the society's mm. interest. Certainly. Um, so, um, but but this is not the way uh, that traders think, and uh, to to some extent, it's not the way they're supposed to think. They are supposed to um, to be profit oriented. So. Um, I really see that risk management should be um, on, on, on the same level as, um, as trading operations. It should sure. be back when I was in the industry, risk management was um, considered middle and back office. And in, in, in a way, um, we thought of risk management as being a, a, a nuisance. I mean, they were more or less standing in our way when we didn't want them. Uh, to stand in our way, but with hindsight, I, I can't stress how important it is to have a good and sound risk manage- management. So you need powerful people, and you need people who take on the responsibility. So they should be on the same level in in every respect with with uh, trading operations. They should be able to step in and they should also be confident enough to be able to step in and not not worry about risking their job if they don't step in when they know they should be stepping in. Certainly. I mean, this particular JP Morgan case, um, there, were, there are so many people involved and some of them we actually know personally and we actually know that they're, they're good eggs, actually. They're, yes, you know, it's a, it's a matter of the culture and and the pressures that are, that are in there, uh, in that sort of situation that lead to these sorts of errors. Now, going back to that period of time and coming round to your research as well, as we said, the at the centre of this whole thing is this synthetic uh, synthetic uh, credit uh, portfolio, and. Um, one of the issues, of course, was that the the checks and balances that are meant to be in place just weren't there in terms of oversight internally, as well as regulatory uh, jurisdiction at that time, really. There was a very sort of gray area as to who was actually responsible for, for, uh, for regulating this kind of activity. But in, on, the, on the internal uh, oversight aspect... Um, and coming in closer to your research, what was the typical approach at that point, 2011, 2012, um, in terms of handling the risk management for a, for a, a trading book, for a portfolio of this nature, 
Um, we have value at risk measurements. We have um, CSW10, which was the other one which was in application here. Um, but the question is, because you're going to be talking about correlation, was correlation on anybody's radar at that point? Was it really something that people would have thought about at that point as a, as a, as a meaningful way to uh, yes. provide well, checks and balances? Well, um, uh, to answer that question, we, we, we may need to go back a bit in time to look at earlier cases. Okay. So uh, let me maybe just start out with um, my former PhD student, now a research assistant, Fabian Weberking. He did a great job in digging through all the publicly available information and documents about the London whale. Right. And because of court hearings and Senate hearings in the US, there's a lot uh, available publicly and the challenge is really to plow through it and uh, distill the, uh, the, 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 the information that's in there. Now, from what he found is that what was used, um, at least officially in what's publicly known, was valued risk and the credit spread widening of 10 basis points which are two um, standard risk measures to look at in the finance industry, um, which is also what would usually be uh, reported to um, uh, from a regulatory point of view. So valued risk measures, um, uh, uh, measures a boundary, uh, uh, which tells you what is, uh, what is the a, a bound of loss that is not going to be uh, breached with a certain pre-given probability. Mm-hmm. So it tells you uh, your losses are going to stay within that bound with the probability of 99% and only extend that boundary called valued risk with a probability of 1%. This is a standard risk measure in, in, in the finance industry. And then on trading desks, of course, you also look at uh, sensitivities such as a credit spread widening where you just assume that all credit spreads widen by 10 basis points at the same time. That's a standard sensitivity to look at. Now, if we go back in time, if we look uh, back in time uh, in the late 1990s, 97, 98, there was um, a a very big loss um, uh, um, that was caused by a hedge fund called LTCM, Long-Term Capital Management. And yes. this loss has been very well studied because it was one of the first um, in investors who used valued risk as a risk measure to, um, to, to find their optimal portfolio, um, their optimal asset allocation. And one of the things they ignored, at least from what we know, uh, one of the things they ignored was that um, the parameters that you use to calculate valued risk might change. They're not fixed. They, they are dynamic. We're in an economy that is constantly changing and we don't have a lab environment where we can just assume calibrated parameters. They will stay fixed as they are. Sure. Um, and that was one of the reasons why their approach actually didn't work. One of several reasons. So um, I, I would assume uh, that uh, 
everyone will have learned from LTCM, and given that the people who were running the uh, synthetic credit derivatives uh, portfolio, they were professionals, um, I'd be surprised if they didn't look at uh, other scenarios as well, such as what would happen if, uh, if uh, volatilities increase, what would happen if correlations break down. Um, but at least it's not officially documented. There's no public hint to that this is what they did. And um, so it's, it's more or less the question of were they aware of the additional risks that were not exposed by their valued risk and CSW10 calculations or not? Right, um, right. Um, I'd, I'd be surprised if they weren't. I'd be surprised. <laughs> Yes, well, from LTCM, I think the the main thing that anybody learnt was the uh, the phrase "too big to fail," but <laughs> and also the importance of how big your sample period was. Um, but the but certainly in this case, um, the if in terms of um, the actual actions of the traders in the CIO, the chief investment office at JP Morgan, there wasn't that level of oversight and there wasn't even a limit in terms of uh, their, their, their trade positions, what the, the maximums were. And also there, was, there wasn't even a, a, a dedicated risk manager sort of attached to the desk until things started to really look like they were going in the wrong direction. Um, in, in the usual case, um, assuming that, um, assuming that uh, people aren't marking to market with far more aggressive figures than they ought to be rather than the midpoint, um, assuming that people are actually reporting at the right time of day, because I understand that in this particular case, people were sort of hanging on and extending the period out to the and saying, well, London closing was not that great. Let's wait till New York closes before we report our value at risk figure and all sorts of things like that. Eventually um, ending up with uh, the decision to come up with a brand new value at risk model, which would actually report more favorable figures, um, which then subsequently led on to a sort of a, a doubling and tripling down on this buy your way out of trouble approach that seemed to be in play at the time. Um, but assuming that hadn't been the case and it was just, okay, let's stick to the accepted approaches of the time. Um, how much additional insight and value would your correlation approach have provided and this would be a good segue, I think, into um, correlation techniques in general, how you're tying that into different economic factors. Mm -hmm. And um, also the, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Bayesian approaches as well. Mm -hmm. So be, be, before I talk about correlation, uh, one thing that's important, and that goes back to the first point I made, one thing that's important to understand about the London Whale case is that the um, the portfolio was run by very successful and highly regarded people in the industry. Mm, yeah. So, um, so 
it's 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 naturally hard if you don't install people in risk management who are at par, who are on the same level as uh, as those uh, traders and portfolio sure. managers. It is very hard to 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 manage that incentive conflict. Right. So, um, and and that has always been one of the cornerstones of Basel regulation is. Um, to require institutions to have a separate risk management entity uh, right up into senior management, fully independent. Um, but I, I think the London Whale example, uh, the, the London Whale case shows that uh, this is what Basel has been, Basel regulation has been requiring, but it's very hard to really... Um, uh, install this in a way that this is lived across the institution. Right. It's costly to run risk management operations. It's costly. It's 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 a pure cost factor. It's not a profit generating uh, entity, um, but it resolves an incentive conflict, and it should be aware to anyone in the finance industry that the incentive conflict is not a conflict with, um, uh, with. Uh, regulation, regulatory authorities, external regulators, but it's also an incentive conflict with uh, shareholders and with management. It's also about this, the, 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 the well-being of the institution that you work for, the shares you hold even as an employee. So it's also in the interest of senior management and employees that there's a good risk management. I think this is a, this is a, a a, a fact that's been overlooked by a lot, but by, by by a lot of people in the finance industry. I, I, I think that's a, a, a way of thinking that we we need to uh, be aware of. That it's it's not only society or external regulators. It, it, it's really also within the organisation. Good risk management will will certainly help the organisation mid and long term. For sure. Okay. Absolutely. So, but coming to, um, to, to correlation, well, uh, from our perspective, there are several reasons why the London Whale case was such a brilliant case for studying correlation and correlation scenarios and correlation stress testing. Um, uh, first, because it was a large loss and not a fraud case. So we had something to work on where we had all the information that we needed. We could replicate the portfolio at least mm. on a particular day, we could replicate the position. Um, uh, but it's also an interesting case because it's a portfolio that is inherently driven by correlation. It's a credit derivatives portfolio uh, with a very large notional, but with a lot of internal hedges. So a lot of positions offsetting each other Yep. so that the actual riskiness measured in something called a unit called risk-weighted assets actually look fairly small. Right. Or the value of risk also look fairly small because, uh, for instance, um, within the portfolio, there could be a long position in a particular credit derivative uh, that was investment grade and an offsetting uh, credit derivatives uh, position with a similar maturity that was high yield. Right, And one would say, well, those two would naturally be highly correlated because they only differ in this investment grade versus high yield. 
respect. So they are nice hedges and that brings down the risk. And having said that, those positions, they nicely hedged each other most of the time, but they were not perfect hedges. So this made it a nice case to, to, to investigate, well, what could happen to the portfolio if correlation broke down? Right. Um, and that was one of the reasons to, to, uh, to study that particular case from the point of view of correlation scenarios and correlation stress testing. Having said that, uh, the, the correlation uh, or decorrelation problem was not the only problem that the, uh, the the portfolio was facing. It was also, of course, facing with a huge notional liquidity issues and yes. um, the, the, the the problem that you would not be able to just eliminate the position in a very short amount of time if you wanted no, to. No, they, 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 they just found themselves in that pinch all too often and didn't offload those... Uh, sort of detrimental exactly. positions quickly enough and just kept on buying stuff that nobody would ever want to buy off them. <laughs> exactly. So there was a decision by management in late 2011 to reduce the riskiness of the, uh, uh, of the credit derivatives portfolio. Now, there are two ways how you can reduce risk. You can just sell off positions. Quite obviously, mm. that will reduce your risk. Or in the case of this credit derivatives portfolio, you could buy new positions that act as hedges for existing positions. And this is what right. they chose to do. So they, uh, they, they blew up the notion of the portfolio, bringing down the risk-weighted assets. But the risk-weighted assets only ever give you a snapshot of what is your instantaneous risk, but they don't tell you really what is your, your looking forward, what is your risk going to be. It's meant to be forward-looking, Right. But it always uses historical data. And as I said before, there are assumptions such as that the parameters that you put into the model are constant. So um, the way we looked at it is that we said, well, with those credit derivatives, and that's a third uh, nice factor why it was such a, uh, such a nice case to study, is that the credit derivatives, they have... It's a very homogeneous portfolio in the sense mm. that every single position has a maturity, has um, it can be investment grade or high yield, um, is either uh, European or North American. Then there is something called a series in those credit derivatives. So they all have kind of this, the same types of properties and just differ in the actual um, instance of each of those properties. Sure. So we thought this would be a nice way to link those properties with correlations. Mm. So we could play around with scenarios. What happens if correlations between credit derivatives of different maturities change? What happens if there's a decorrelation between European and North American credit derivatives? So we could actually specify correlation scenarios in an in economic terms economic right. now i'm stretching the term a bit in in terms of those properties of those credit derivatives so sure so we we linked uh correlation with those properties by borrowing ideas from interest rate modeling so anyone who's 
who, who's been uh, working on, uh, for a market model, such as the labor market model, would know that there are some parametric ways of modeling correlations. Because uh, a labor market model is a high dimensional um, uh, interest rate model because uh, many forward LIBOR rates are modeled simultaneously. So we have to take into account their correlations, but if we just take empirical, empirical correlations, we will have lots of parameters and they're noisy parameters. So it makes sense to come up with some parametric way so, of modeling correlation. And this is where, this is where Bayesian variable selection methods come in, not, right? Not, not quite yet, not quite yet. So, so the basic uh, parametric, the simplest parametric correlation model you see in the labor market model is in such a way that um, uh, it, it says, well, as um, if you take two forward LIBORs, um, if they are far away in terms of their maturities, the correlation should be lower than if they're close. Mm. So five and six year LIBOR rate uh, would uh, have a higher correlation than a one and 10 year LIBOR rate which is kind of a very natural sure, way makes of... Sense. Uh, yeah. So we borrowed that idea and we thought, well, maturity is a distance measure. So maybe we can apply this kind of distance measure to other properties. So we have a, uh, a distance in terms of there's a distance if two credit derivatives differ in being investment grade and high yield as opposed to if they are both investment grade or both high yield. So there's some decorrelation entering if they differ in this respect. Right. Or if they, if they differ in terms of their geographic regions. So if they are both North American, there will be no decorrelation from the, um, from the geographic region. But if they differ in terms of being North American, European, there will be some decorrelation entering. Mm. So we... Uh, used that parametric form from the LIBOR market model and applied it to the London whale. And this connection allowed us to now make changes to the the strength of those decorrelations de for various right. factors. And the strength of those decorrelations, we calibrated from historical data. So we, we just took uh, historical data every day and every day we calibrated the strength of those decorrelation factors. And that gave us a time series of decorrelation factors. So we could actually observe how decorrelation had taken place over time. Right. We, could, uh, we even had a distribution of those decorrelation factors. Right. And that's the basic idea. <laughs> it's very simple. And that's at a portfolio-wide level, is it? Exactly. Exactly. And so what we observed from calibrating those factors is that there had been a strong decorrelation between investment grade and high yield. Right. So um, uh, so with a very simple uh, method, we could observe that decorrelation. And, uh, and then we could use the historical information to, to determine um, uh, scenarios in terms of if we take um, an extreme scenario from the historical data and apply to today's portfolio, what would happen to the valued risk of that portfolio? Right, right. Why didn't anybody ever make that connection before? 
that's a good question. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a good question. I, I, I wouldn't even claim that nobody's done it. it it's hard to say what people do um, uh, in, uh, in, in trading desks, what kind sure. of tests they run, but it's not public information. And it's not even maybe available to regulators. So it's, uh, it, it'd be bold to say nobody's doing it. It hasn't been done from an academic perspective. A, a lot of research effort has gone into modeling dependency through copulas and other means because we know that correlation is a very uh, simplistic measure of dependence and it fails right. to capture uh, uh, important aspects of dependency as we see it. So there's been um, a huge uh, progress in dependence modeling but correlation stress testing um, from uh, what we've seen has has not been uh, um, has not been treated thoroughly before. There are some challenges if you have a large correlation matrix and you make changes to it. Uh, you, you have to make sure that you meet the mathematical requirements of a correlation matrix. So there there are some uh, I would say technical challenges to that as well. Um, but as far as I know, the, the, the link from economic scenarios or from some properties of the assets uh, to, uh, to correlation scenarios, that's not been studied before. Interesting. So, you know, you were talking about um, how you borrowed uh, some ideas from interest rate modeling um, and... One of, I mean, one of the areas with interest rate modeling is the sort of early adoption of uh, Bayesian methods. Um, could you say a little bit about that? Because in terms of uh, the interest rate space, it's not necessarily a novel thing anymore to be talking about Bayesian uh, methodologies. But um, in this particular aspect... Why yes. that choice? Okay, so th this would now leave the linen whale behind. Um, yeah. And uh, so we, we published um, uh, the, the, the paper on the linen whale and we were approached uh, by regulators and they asked as well, this is a, a, a great idea, but it's so tailored to the London whale. How could this approach be used in a in a in a more general right. setting, so you have a, a typical loan portfolio, credit portfolio in a in a financial institution. How could you apply this approach to a general portfolio? So um, and and well, that, that's how. So so we're leaving the London Whale behind, and we we started to think about how could this be generalized? This approach. Um, one of the general methods that financial institutions use to um, to um, uh, um, to to uh, measure or to calibrate correlations for large loan portfolios is through something called a factor model. So you have some risk factors, and uh, you determine the correlations of the those risk factors, and then the actual 
uh, loans or assets are uh, linked through those risk factors and that's how you determine their correlations. Um, because remember correlation, determining correlations is a very high dimensional um, uh, problem. It's, right. it's a huge number of free parameters and correlations are extremely noisy. They're driven by so many things that uh, if, if we just measure correlation empirically, we see very weird uh, dependencies a lot of the time. So we want to have a bit of control. So risk factors, factor models are a generally accepted approach and risk factors would typically be geographic regions and industries. Um, now, if we, um, if we just use a general factor model as it is used in the industry, which typically involves regression techniques, um, we find that every firm is uh, somehow linked to every risk factor. And this yes. is not useful. Uh, this is not useful for stress testing. <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we say we do a, 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 a stress test on Finland and uh, every asset in the world somehow depends on, on Finland, even if it's just weak, then it's not a stress test on Finland anymore. So, um, so the idea was to determine what are, for every asset, what are the most important risk factors. Um, so it's a factor selection problem. Um, so instead of using a regression approach, so uh, where, where people know this is uh, ordinarily squares estimate, estimation of parameters and right. you never get a parameter or a coefficient that is zero, so instead of using this, we were looking at factor selection approaches. And many people nowadays will know there are so-called regularization techniques. And some of them are, one of them that is very suitable for factor selection is called lasso. So this is kind of uh, like a linear equation as you have it in regression, but it's a technique that selects factors and applies zeros to a lot of factors. Now, um, the, 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 the additional thing, though, that we have here is that we know for every firm there's one particular country, namely where it's headquartered, and one particular industry where we have prior knowledge. And a technique such as Lasso would not be able to pick up that prior knowledge. And this is where yeah. Bayesian variable selection comes in. Right. So the Bayesian variable selection that we employ, we've been playing around with several methods, but the one that we employ is, employs very close to lasso, with the exception that it allows us to use that additional prior knowledge. So we, we can always make sure that VW is an automotive company located in Germany, even if there are possibly uh, settings where the data would, for one quarter, um, suggest something different. And sure. this is where the Bayesian variable selection comes in. So what we're really looking at is we want to make the best use of the prior knowledge we have. And then we want to select a few important factors. Uh, for instance, we know that VW, it's a German company, but um, if there's a recession in other economic areas, it'll impact VW as well. So we want to pick up those important factors as well. And this is where the Bayesian variable selection comes in.
Okay. And then once we have those factors selected, um, we, we, we regularly update them with, um, uh, with fresh data. Uh, we're back to the method that we employed in the London Whale, where we can now link those risk factors um, with the correlations of the um, of the of the assets, the firms, or the funds. And then we can right. run scenarios. We can do stress testing, and we can even do reverse stress testing. So we could even ask, well, what is what is a kind of worst case economic setting for my portfolio? Okay. Certainly, I'm looking forward to the talk and um, further explanation of um, uh, the the research uh, process and so on. Um, is there anything that you wanted to particularly stress on that you think that we might have we might have missed in this conversation? As far as I see, um, there hasn't been so much research on this topic so i'm still very very and, and it's still ongoing research on our, our side so if listeners have ideas or suggestions um I, i'd be very open and welcome to hear them and discuss them um i mean so far we've been we've been uh, in discussions with uh, various people and stakeholders um, but um, I'm sure there are people out there who have very good ideas or who see nice applications of what we're doing, and I'd be uh, very interested in hearing about those. That would be great, and we'd love to hear more about developments as this progresses as well. Um, thanks very much for joining us on our inaugural Quant Speak, Natalie. And, well, thank um, you for having me. As I said, we're, uh, we're looking forward to the talk, and obviously... Um, if you're listening to this after the talk was actually on, you should go along to the CQF Institute, sign up, and you should be able to access the video there. All right. Thanks. Great. Have a great well, day. Thank you so much. Have a nice evening. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to QuantSpeak. Don't forget to subscribe and do sign up to the CQF Institute for more insights into quant finance.